Waiting's hard, isn't it? Have you ever been in a situation where you were forced to just wait, especially when you weren't expecting it? Maybe you ended up at the emergency, and all you could do was sit and wait. And wait. And wait. And there's nothing you could do to change any of it. And you find yourself looking up at the clock or looking at your phone or looking at your watch, and it feels like it's been an eternity since you last checked, and when you look, it's only been three minutes. And you wait. Waiting is hard. And we just sang about hope. And I don't know if you realize it, but waiting and hoping are connected because hoping requires waiting. And we like the idea of hope. Renew our hope. Increase our hope. But do it without the waiting because we don't like waiting. Because waiting... It's hard. Today, we are in the last chapter of the book of Luke. And we've been on this long journey of walking through Luke. And we're looking at this passion of Jesus, these last few days of his life. And in this chapter about the burial of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, there's this bit in the middle about waiting. And in the church, we have gotten so good at doing Good Friday. And we have gotten so good at doing Easter. We are masters at the crucifixion and the empty tomb, the resurrection. But for most or much of the church, for many Christians... We don't know what to do with Saturday. We're good with Friday, no pun intended. Actually, pun intended. We're good with Friday. We're good with Sunday. What do you do with Saturday? <clears throat> and that's what we're going to explore today because Saturday is about waiting. So we're going to cover a big chunk at the end of Luke 23 and through Luke 24. <clears throat> which is about the burial of Jesus and then the resurrection of Jesus. And we'll see where we go. In Luke 23, at the end of it, Jesus has been uh, arrested. He's been tried. He's been convicted as a, as a criminal. He's been executed, crucified on a cross. And then we come to this part about the burial of Jesus. And we're introduced to this guy named Joseph of Arimathea, who was part of the original council of leaders that actually condemned Jesus to death. But Luke says he didn't actually uh, agree with that. 
And so Joseph goes to Pilate, and he asks for Jesus' body. The other week, we asked the question, who killed Jesus? Well, Luke would have us understand that ultimately it was the Romans because he goes to Pilate to say, could I have the body? And he takes the body of Jesus and he puts it in his own tomb. And this is the part where I'd like to read for you. Verse 54, Joseph has taken the body, wrapped it up, put it in tomb, carved out of the rock. Verse 54, this was done late on Friday afternoon, the day of preparation. And the Sabbath was about to begin. And as his body was taken away, the women from Galilee followed and saw the tomb where the body was placed. So there was a a contingent of women that were following along. In verse 56, we read this. Then they went home, and they prepared spices and ointments to anoint his body. But by the time they were finished, the Sabbath had begun. So they rested as required by the law. So they are all ready to bury Jesus. Joseph has put him in the tomb. These women have prepared um, spices and ointments because burial was different than what we're used to today where they would put a body in a tomb. Tomb could hold multiple bodies where there was time given for the flesh to decay. And then after a year, they would come back and they would collect the bones and they would put the bones in a box called an ossuary. And then the boxes would be kept. And so tombs were used multiple times. And the women saw which tomb Jesus was in because they certainly didn't want to go to the wrong tomb when they came back to finish the work of preparing his body for that time. But they had to wait. It was the Sabbath. And on the Sabbath, you're not allowed to do this kind of work. Now, what's curious is that these women who followed Jesus saw him from time to time breaking Sabbath laws because he said the Sabbath was made for humanity, not humanity for the Sabbath. But in this case, they chose to wait. And they waited. And I can't imagine how difficult that must have been for them because waiting is hard. And here's Jesus, the one they loved, being put into a tomb. They waited. He waited. Waiting was inevitable. And I wonder what they did while they waited. I wonder if you've ever found yourself at a time in your life where you had to wait and there's nothing you could do. So we don't like waiting because so much of our culture has wired us to think that we must act. It is up to us. If I don't do something, it's all going to fall apart. But they were forced to wait. And I wonder if you've ever been in a place in your life where you had to wait. What do you do when you have to wait? I would like to suggest that when we're in a place of waiting, it's a wonderful opportunity to practice Saturday prayers. 
Do you know what Saturday prayers are? Have you ever done Saturday prayers? You're like, what's a Saturday prayer? Well, I guess it's a prayer that you pray on Saturday. But it's more than that. Saturday prayers are prayers of waiting. I love what uh, Brian Zahn, a, a pastor in the States, writer, um, in his um, workshop on prayer, he said, you know, when we're happy, what kind of prayers do we pray? Happy prayers. When we're sad, we pray sad prayers. When we are angry, we pray angry prayers. And prayer isn't so much about trying to get God be, to behave in the way we want him to behave, but prayer is about being properly formed. And Saturday prayers are a great way for us to be formed while we wait. And Saturday prayers are prayers that we pray when all we can do is hope, when we're at the end of our rope, when we're not sure what God is doing, when we're frustrated with the unfairness of life, then we pray Saturday prayers. And God has given us this wonderful gift of a collection of Saturday prayers in the book of Psalms. And if you've never been able to kind of read the Psalms and think like, well, what are these all about? Those are prayers. Those are gifts for you. Prayers you can pray when you don't know what to pray. Prayers you can pray when you don't feel like praying. Of course, I know there's never been a time when you didn't feel like praying because you are far more spiritual than I am. Of course, there's been times when you didn't feel like praying. And it's those times that the Psalms are so beautiful. And the Psalms are filled with prayers that are sometimes referred to as prayers of lament. And, if, and they're scattered throughout the Psalms. You can look them up, but if you just start reading, you'll come across one pretty quickly. I want to read for you from Psalm 77. Just to give you a taste of what a Saturday prayer feels like. <clears throat> I cry out to God. Yes, I shout. Oh, that God would listen to me. When I was in deep trouble, I searched for the Lord. All night long I prayed with hands lifted toward heaven, but my soul was not comforted. Does that sound familiar for any of you? I think of God and I moan, overwhelmed with longing for his help. You don't let me sleep. I'm too distressed even to pray. I think of the good old days long since ended when my nights were filled with joyful songs. I search my soul and I ponder the difference now. Has the Lord rejected me forever? Will he never again be kind to me? Is his unfailing love gone forever? Have his promises permanently failed? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he slammed the door on his compassion? Curiously, as you read through that psalm, to the end, you realize there's a change in the psalm. The first half is this lament. It's a Saturday prayer, a prayer that we pray when we're waiting. And then the back half of that psalm feels like, oh, everything works out in the end. The back half of that psalm is not a promise. 
it's not even a resolve of the tension that you feel in the first half of the psalm. It's just simply a reminder. And it's good to be reminded when we have to wait. Waiting and hoping are connected. I want to tell you about creation in a couple of different ways today because I want you to see how the creation story is connected to the resurrection story and how waiting is such a powerful gift that God has given to us. How many days did it take for God to create? Right? What did he do on the seventh day? Say it louder. He rested. I know you're like, I don't want to say the wrong answer. <laughs> Get out. Okay. He rested. And the story of Jesus is, is in some ways the retelling of the creation story. Of the work of God in Jesus for six days. And on the seventh day, on Saturday, Jesus laid in the tomb and he rested. But resting requires inactivity. It requires us to realize that all of our efforts to create our own reality and our own eternity are futile. If you can't wait and hope and trust, I think you're going to be disappointed often with God. And along with the idea of waiting comes this idea of emptiness and hoping in the emptiness. We don't like waiting and we don't like the idea of emptiness because we're wired to be active and we're wired to fill the void. And both waiting and emptiness imply a sense of weakness. We prefer activity and strength. But God says, welcome to the kingdom and to following Jesus, where waiting is necessary and emptiness is a good thing. Can we go back to creation for a minute? What was there at the very beginning? When you go to Genesis chapter 1, and you read, in the beginning, God created. It says, the earth was formless and empty. But God was present in the emptiness. God was at work in the emptiness. 
we get dazzled by he spoke. There was light. There was land. There was water. There were animals. There were humans. It's all amazing. We like the God that's busy because he looks much more like we do. But God was present in the emptiness. I think there's something really rich and meaningful in that idea. I want to run with this a little bit more, this idea of emptiness. If you're following along, you know, Genesis 1, you can jump to Exodus chapter 25. This is where you get to the boring parts of reading your Bible. If you've read through the Bible before, you get to parts where you're just like, eh. you know, if you ever get a book and you're reading it and you enjoy it, and then you get to a part where you're like, eh, what do you do? Oh, okay, back to the good stuff. So in Exodus 25, there's all these instructions. Moses, this is how you're supposed to make this, and this is how you're supposed to build this, and this is how you're supposed to build that. Let's talk about the Ark and the Covenant. And there's all these dimensions about how it's supposed to be specific and everything. Basically, God said, build a box, overlay it with gold, and then build a cover for the box. And the cover's made out of pure gold, and on that cover make two angels that are facing each other. And this is called the Ark of the Covenant. How many of you have been to see the latest Indiana Jones movie? Yeah. That's, he made it famous. Where did most people learn about the Ark of the Covenant in today's world? Not from reading their Bible, but from Indiana Jones. And I thought the last movie was much like all the other ones, just fun and entertaining. That's the Ark of the Covenant. I want you to notice the space between the angels, the cherubim. And I want you to listen to the verse 22 in Exodus 25. God says, make it just like this. And then he writes, says this to Moses, I will meet you there and talk to you from above the atonement cover between the gold cherubim that hover over the ark of the covenant. And then another riveting book, the book of Numbers. We read this. Whenever Moses went into the tabernacle to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from between the two cherubim above the ark's cover. See, the ark of the covenant was placed in the holy of holies in the temple. And it was in the space in the, in the temple that was empty except for the ark some other things that God dwelled. And it was the space between the cherubim where God's presence dwelt. And he spoke to Moses. God was in the emptiness. The prophet Isaiah, uh, just an amazingly eloquent poetic book in the Hebrew Bible. He had a, an experience with God and in Isaiah chapter 6, we read that he was in the temple. And the temple was devoid of any images of God. It was, for all intents and purposes, an empty space. And Isaiah gets a call from God. God says, 
this is what I want you to do. I want you to preach in such a way that people basically end up confused. And Isaiah says, okay. So if you've ever wondered about my preaching, it's just because, you know. Isaiah says, how long? And then God says, you know, in a very poetic way, a long time. And the whole ministry of Isaiah is 40 years, 40-plus years of Isaiah speaking to Israel in a way and wondering if God was ever going to do anything. It was 40 years of waiting and hoping. And he got it all in the empty space at the temple. In creation, God was present in the emptiness. In the Ark of the Covenant, in the atonement cover, also called the mercy seat of God. God makes very clear to his people he's present in the emptiness. Let's come back to Luke 24. Jesus has been laid in the tomb. And everyone's been forced to wait. But very early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. So they went in, but they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. As they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them clothed in dazzling robes. Who were those men? If you keep reading in Luke 24, you'll read that the women tell the, the disciples. I love it. And then, and then we read that the men thought that their story sounded like nonsense in verse 11. They didn't believe it. I'm like, man, we're still doing that same thing today. That's another sermon. But then, then um, these two guys are walking. They have an encounter with Jesus. They run back and they tell the other disciples. And, um, and then we read this, that the women from our group, they're, they're retelling the story. The women from our group were at his tomb early this morning. They came back with an amazing report. They said that his body was missing, and they had seen what? Angels who told them that Jesus is alive. They had seen angels that told them that Jesus is alive. How many angels were there? Two in the empty tomb. God is in the emptiness. The cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant are two angels, and God's presence was in the emptiness between them. The women go into the tomb, and they meet two angels, and God's presence is there in the emptiness. You see, Saturday is necessary to really live fully into Sunday. And if we can't endure Saturday, Sunday's really going to feel less than it could. 
And until we learn how to lean into and embrace the gift of waiting and hoping as a part of our growth, we're just going to end up being Sunday junkies. And we become Christians that are addicted to hype and uh, bells and whistles. And we're great at doing this as Christians. When you're in a full room and everybody's singing and enjoying the, the worship music, I often hear from people, oh, God was so present. And could be true. It probably is. But I don't hear, and I don't do it in my own life, I don't hear a saying very much in the midst of having to wait, in the midst of emptiness. People say, oh, God was really present. Saturday's a gift because it makes Sunday so much more meaningful. I want to look at one other part of the story here in Luke 24 about the resurrection of Jesus. We're not being very traditional in talking about the resurrection of Jesus. We'll save that for next Easter. But as you come to, I have to put my glasses on, verse 13. Uh, Jesus, the women have found the tomb empty. They've run and told the disciples. The disciples didn't believe them, so they go to f- see for themselves. And then Luke just changes, like it's like a, a scene change from Jerusalem to um, a road leading to this little town of Emmaus. And there's two people walking. And we read that suddenly Jesus appeared to these two disciples as they were walking along. And they are you know, followers of Jesus, they're struggling, they're not sure what to do. And Luke says, as they walked along, they were talking about everything that happened. And as they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. And then verse 16 is really curious. So we read this, but they were kept from recognizing him. So here's Jesus resurrected. These two people are walking along and they were kept from recognizing Jesus. Now, some translations, if you have a Bible like mine, uh, the New Living Translation, you might read this, but God kept them from recognizing him. And this is one of those cases where you come into translation issues, and I just feel like um, the bias in the interpretation practice of the interpreters really plays out here because the original text does not say God kept them from recognizing Jesus. It reads, they were kept from recognizing this is one of those times where I just think, you know, you know because I am such an expert uh, in, uh, in translation and in Greek studies, but, you know, I can read other scholars and experts. And I think, I think the translators of this translation got it wrong. I think that's putting an awful lot on God to say he kept them from recognizing. So I think it's worth asking the question, what kept them from recognizing All throughout Luke's gospel, people don't understand who Jesus is, and they're not recognizing him. And it wasn't because God was keeping them from recognizing him. It was because of their own misconceptions, their preconceived ideas about how God was supposed to be, what he was supposed to be like. And over and over again in Luke's gospel, they don't get it. 
Why would it be any different here? They were kept from... In fact, if you read down a little bit later, as Jesus is almost toying with them, oh, what's going on? I haven't heard anything about what's going on. Like, are you the only guy in the city who hasn't heard about this guy being crucified? And he just plays dumb. And they're like, we had hoped that Jesus was the Messiah of Israel. We had hoped that Jesus... See, they're waiting, but the hoping is, is not happening. And they feel like they can't wait anymore. So they're just trying to carry on with life, feeling totally dejected. It's up to us to do something. Even though all along Jesus said, three days, three days, three days, died, buried, crucified, died, buried, crucified, wait, wait, wait. They can't wait because they're wired to act because it's easy to talk about waiting, but waiting is hard. Hoping is hard because everything in our culture is instant. And we think, you know, waiting a long time is like, you know, waiting for a day. Can I just remind you of how awkward it felt when I just took my time coming up here for 60 seconds? We had hoped that he was the Messiah. And interestingly, Jesus just journeys with them. He doesn't get mad at them because they're not waiting. He doesn't, he doesn't lay into them and tell them they're stupid or they're idiots and they can't play with him now because they, they didn't hope and trust God. He just walks with them. And I think, oh, how beautiful. They don't get it. They can't wait. They're so confused. And Jesus just keeps walking with them. And then finally they sit down together. And he breaks bread. And when he breaks the bread, their eyes are opened and they recognize Jesus. When they have the opportunity to sit down and wait and eat with Jesus, they finally see him for who he is. It's so often at the table when everything slows down and relationship is, is paramount that we experience the presence of God, that our eyes get opened. This ending of Luke's gospel is so amazing in the gift that he's giving us, in the reminder of the gift, but the difficulty of waiting. The beauty and the challenge of hoping and of the question we're all forced to ask ourselves, what is it that might be keeping me from recognizing Jesus right in front of me? The resurrected Jesus, the living God, Because waiting is hard. But it's a necessary part of learning to hope and trust. And it's my prayer today that we would all understand following Jesus is to grow into that gift of waiting 
and hoping. Let's pray. Father, thank you for knowing us better than we know ourselves. And for the gifts you give us that we may not even realize we need. Thank you for Luke, this guy who so masterfully um, retells the story of Jesus for us. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for... uh, just the hope we have in Christ. But God, may we, as your disciples, be open to this journey of waiting, of of realizing that you're present in the emptiness. And for those that are here today who are sick of waiting and feel like life is empty, may this just be the kind of hope uh, catalyst that they need. May we have the longevity of Isaiah to trust in you, even if it means for 40 years. And to know that that faith will not disappoint. Thank you for my brothers and sisters here today and around the region who are so devoted to celebrating Sunday and understanding the implications of Friday. And together for all of us, may we be able to lean into Saturday Embrace Saturday prayers and become people comfortable with waiting and hoping. Amen. Amen.